Thank you, and I hope you had a great lunch. Uh, now the witching hour. Um, so, we're going to, let's, let's pray, and then we'll get started here. Father, we thank you again for your instruction, your love for us, and uh, we understand, Father, that what you've called us to is to labor in Christ, to believe, to follow, and to work. And so now we ask that you help us to do some of that work, to listen, to take to heart, to be eager to receive your word, and to be eager to implement it in our lives, that we might see the fruit, that we might see the blessing of that labor, that faith, that love. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This talk is in regard to maturity and trials and how we respond to trials. The primary work of the church is to grow, not just numerically. We're always encouraged when we see a church that starts out with a small number, and next time we check in or see each other, that church has grown in numbers. And we tend to measure success that way. How many people come? How many are members? How big is the budget? How big is the building? Those are measures of a certain kind of growth, but of course, It's essential that we grow spiritually as well and is the primary work of the church to make sure that this family is growing and maturing in Christ. God begins his work in us and then he moves to complete it. He's provided all that we need in Christ. He's provided friends. He's provided families. He's provided Bibles. He's provided pastors and teachers. He's provided places for us to meet. We could go on and on with all the the things and the means that he has provided to enable us to to grow in Christ. For we, uh, Ephesians 2 says, for we are his workmanship. Literally, uh, or the, the Greek word there is poema. It's where we get our word poem. We are his poetry created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We're going somewhere. God wants to put us to work in his kingdom. And so, as he teaches us, instructs us, and matures us, it is in order to equip us for service in his kingdom. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There's that standard again, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. So when God called us, he didn't just call us to go to heaven. He called us to be like Christ. That is what he's doing. In the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches, we see his great objective was the spiritual growth and maturity of each person. Again, he says that he was preaching Christ, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that he may present every man perfect or mature in Christ. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his work, uh, which works in me mightily. Moreover, he himself was diligent in the pursuit of maturity. Philippians three twelve through 15, not that I have already attained. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He didn't get to some level and say, you know what, I'm able to instruct the whole church and write epistles and I've arrived. He said, I, not that I've already attained, nor am I already perfected. I'm not, I think we could translate that or interpret that to say, Paul said, I am not full grown yet. I am, 
I've not reached my full potential. I'm not completely mature yet, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. We keep hearing that kind of phrase, in Christ. What does that mean? We're called to be like Christ. We're called to be in Christ, connected to Christ. He is our older brother. He is our model. He is our standard. Therefore, he says, let us, this is Paul continuing in Philippians 3, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, this attitude, this perspective, this mindset. So our goal is not simply to see people come into the church and die and go to heaven, but our goal is to see them come into the church and immediately begin to move in the direction of maturity. The Christian command, or the central command of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And this includes evangelism, but it is also a call to Christian maturity, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so, for example, we read of one of Paul's companions and co-laborers, Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete or mature in all the will of God. There's another co-laborer with Paul who's laboring to see this happen in the people of God. And Peter is also concerned to see this progress and growth. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire pure, the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Growth is the evidence of a healthy child. If you have a child that stops growing, we become gravely concerned. Perhaps they're not eating or taking in enough nutrition. There's something wrong, and we are urgent to get it fixed because growth is what we look for as a sign of maturity and development. Are they talking and walking and, and, and doing the things we would expect, and likewise for our spiritual maturity? Now, God uses many things, in fact, we could argue he uses everything to accomplish this, to accomplish our growth. Again, time alone is not sufficient to produce maturity by itself. Babies need many things if they're to survive and prosper. They will need a mother and a father and a family, food and shelter and protection, instruction, discipline, and other forms of of nurture. Um, I was just watching... The day before we left, I called Marinelle to the front door. We have a glass door, live out in the country, and there was a baby mockingbird there on the ground. And it was, uh, it would take two steps and flap its wings and take two more steps and flap its wings trying to get these things to work. And there nearby was the mother mockingbird. Uh, she saw me come to the door and began to fuss uh, pretty dramatically to make sure I didn't bother her baby but again, as we watch this in nature, this is this little bird. Now it's time to, to leave the nest, to, to fly, to, to step out and go. And there's how God works in us as well. And so uh, God has provided for all of his children. For those of you who've been born into a Christian home, you have a tremendous advantage. And sometimes we take that for granted and don't realize it. 
but you're like a sick child who was born into a hospital where the remedy is. And there are doctors and nurses. If you think of the doctors, you're like pastors and elders, and the nurses are like your mom and dad. And there's the remedy, the Word of God. And all they have to do is apply it, and you will receive the healing, receive the help that you need. And we read about this in Romans 3, 1 through 12, when Paul is addressing the Jews, the covenant people of God, and he says to you, what advantage then is it to be a Jew? Or what advantage is it to be born into a covenant household? And what does he say? Much in every way. First, you've been given the remedy. You've been given the oracles of God, the word of God. How big an advantage is that? So I like to, in my metaphor here, think of... uh, a child born into a Christian home is baptized. That's like getting a little bracelet at the hospital. It says you belong. Okay? Now, is it possible to be born into that hospital and have the remedy there but die? Yeah. What if you have unfaithful doctors or unfaithful nurses, unfaithful pastors and parents who don't apply the remedy? It's not enough to have the remedy sitting on the shelf next to you. It's got to be applied to you. But if it is... God has given everything we need for the gospel to come forward and to begin to do this work in us uh, through, through the word and through his church. And so you are surrounded with the means of your spiritual growth and maturity. And so you have the Bible. Remember what Paul told Timothy. From the time you were a child, and the word there is brephos, which means a nursing baby. And so his... His grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, are teaching him the Bible from the time he was a nursing baby, and he says, this is able to make you wise unto salvation. So, again, God providing the means, and Jesus prayed for the church in John 17, 17, saying, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Um, We're going to talk about this a little bit more, but sanctification, I think, is another word when we hear it, we can think of maturity. Sanctification is the process of us becoming more and more like Christ. So when we talk about sanctification, we should talk about the process of maturity. And he says what? Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them mature in the truth. Your word is truth. So that's what you've been given. Sanctification is a synonym for growth and maturity. And it clearly... Uh, This clearly tells us what Jesus intends for us. Moreover, God gives us families and spiritual leaders to nurture and help us. And again, we're never alone. Uh, And we're always connected. Um, Ephesians 4.16, The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, does what? Causes the growth, the maturity of the body for the edifying or building up of itself in love. First uh, Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, comfort or encourage each other and edify or build up one another just as you are doing. So again, this is kind of a summary here to say God uses all kinds of things. Uh, parents, church, the Bible, the Spirit, uh, all these various things are, are brought together, uh, fellowship, communion, but he, And again, he's also given us the Holy Spirit to work in us on the inside to enable us and empower us to mature and grow. 
Thus, Paul prays for the Christians at Ephesus in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 16 through 20, that he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the might, with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. This is supernatural. This what God's doing. Just like life is, is you know, you can have a body, but that's not enough. You've got to have life. You've got to have the breath of life. Well, spiritually, you've got to have the Spirit in you, enabling you to grow. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 7, asks, what is sanctification? Again, we could say, what is Christian maturity? Answer, and I'm going to take the liberty to just plug in since we're talking maturity. I want us to think that way. Sanctification or maturity is a work of God's grace, whereby... They whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy or mature are in time through the powerful operation of the Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them renewed in their whole man after the image of God having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts and those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened as that they more and more die to sin and rise unto newness of life. And my point here is, again, God's given us all these things. But there is one more, at least one more, important way in which God accomplishes our maturity and brings us more and more into the conformity of the, to the image of his Son, and that is by way of trials and discipline. We read about this kind of thing, for example, in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I would have been, I would have perished in my affliction. Now, you and I know, you, you, if you've been Christian for any length of time at all, and you look back, you know where you did most of your learning. You know where you did most of your growing. Mountaintops are great. Days when the sun's shining, the birds are singing, and everybody's smiling. Those are great days. Enjoy them, delight in them. But mountaintops are only a small part of where we are in our journey. There's the trip up and the trip down, there's the time in the valley, and all of that. And you know that you've done most of your growing and learning probably in the valley or somewhere near the valley. Now, that doesn't mean we like the valley. That doesn't mean we like the climbs. Uh, you know, if I could pick, I would always pick the shortest, flattest, smoothest uh, between point A and point B. No danger, no risk. I want to get there as quick as I can with no trouble. God almost always takes me a different route. Uphills, downhills, near the cliff, 
all kinds of places. And we're going to see why. None of us like trials or tests or discipline. Hebrews talks about this. Now, no chastening or no discipline seems to be joyful. I like that word. It doesn't seem to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves us, and he wants us to be holy. He wants us to be like Christ. And so he's going to take us the long way, the hard way, in order to instruct us, if we'll learn, if we'll listen. And just a note here, if you don't, if you don't listen and you don't learn, and if God loves you, if you're a child of God, you're going to get to repeat the test. C.S. Lewis describes this sense of dread, uh, this kind of test with an illustration. He says, let me explain. When I was a child, I often had a toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me, give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she'd take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. Well, God loves us, and he is at work in us and for us and through all kinds of trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. This is a passage that I, I love and hate at the same time, like so much of the Bible. It's just like, why do you have to say it that way? You know, why couldn't you say, you know, trust the Lord in, when you fall into trials? No, it has to go further. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's outrageous. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why you can consider it all joy. Something spiritual is about to happen. Something that's good for you. But let patience have its perfect or maturing work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So I used to think, I can remember as a teenager reading this passage and praying for wisdom and almost having this image of it falling out of the sky into my head, into my heart. God was just going to give me wisdom. But when you read the context of this passage, what is he saying? Why are you going to count trials joy? Because in those trials, God's going to teach you and give you what you need, which includes what? Wisdom. So be careful. It's one of those prayers I hate to pray, but I pray it anyway. 
You know, it's like, Lord, make me a godly man no matter what it costs. That is a scary prayer. But I'd urge you to pray it. Lord, make me a godly woman, whatever it costs. Trials, temptations, distress, proving. The good news for the Christian is that our trials have meaning. They have purpose. Even if we can't see what the meaning and purpose is in the moment. However, the trial itself is a means of teaching and maturing us. So why does God test us? Well, he does it in order to make us stronger, to grow us up, to mature us in Christ. And so he designs certain tests, both large and small, all of them designed for our good and not for our harm. Even the wisdom, again, that James tells us to ask for usually comes in the form of a trial. How And, and that is, by the way, why we can, again, count it all joy. Because the end result is wisdom. What's that worth? More precious than rubies? How we respond to these circumstances, whether we respond in a mature or an immature way, will result in radically different outcomes in your life. Two people in essentially the same difficult situation who respond to the situation in a godly or ungodly or mature and immature way will see different results. It matters when the Proverbs say a gentle answer turns away wrath. It matters whether you give a gentle answer or a harsh answer, and you're going to get different results at your house, in your marriage, with your children. Right? Wisdom is now going to be tested. Somebody's doing something you don't like, how are you going to respond? Gentle answer or not? There's a real practical point there that I'm trying to make, and we we can find many of them. Okay? God's purpose is that uh, he works all things together to good for us, and we're never alone in our trials. One of the names, remember, that the scriptures give to Jesus, that he's to be called Emmanuel, God is with us. But see, again, we often haven't developed a God consciousness. We don't pray. We don't go to him when trouble comes. We start trying to fret or solve it or get anxious. And what does he say? Be anxious for nothing. Well, there's another one of those verses I don't like. I can't I be anxious a little bit? You know, on some things, this one's really worrisome. Be anxious for nothing, and then he doesn't stop there. But in everything, and he has to insert this part, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He doesn't promise that he's going to explain it all to me. He's God. I don't always get to know what he's doing or why he's doing it in that moment. But I do get to remember that he loves me and that he's there and that he's wise and that he's in charge. So perspective is critical. I'm convinced the longer I live, the more I come to see that life is more about gaining the right perspective, how we look at things, including trials. Is this just something that's aggravating, or is this something God sent? Big difference in perspective. That doesn't mean I have to walk around with a silly grin on my face because I just had a flat tire in the hot sun. But I can give thanks to God. Perhaps he just spared my life by having me have a flat tire instead of a collision. How I look at it makes a difference, right? 
Maturity in trials means having this right perspective, God's perspective. Think about Joseph. Did he have a few trials? Okay, his brothers sell him into slavery. He's down in that pit. Then he gets hauled off to Egypt. Then he's bought into, he goes to work at Potiphar's house. And then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And then he goes to jail. And he not only goes to jail, he's forgotten in jail. Looks like he's going to just rot away there. You know, one thing you see over and over in that long story of Joseph's life, whether he was in the pit or at Potiphar's house or in jail, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. What happens at the end of the story? Father's dead. Brothers are there, the ones that sold him into slavery. They're scared to death. He's second in command in Egypt. He has the power to execute them and would have been just in doing so. They kidnapped him, sold him into slavery. They were wicked in what they did. And what does he say to them? Don't worry. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to preserve all these people alive. We, get, we have the advantage. Joseph didn't know how his story ended. When he was in prison, he didn't know this part of the story. We do. God gave it to us so we can see how God works. So we get to the end of the story, all the pieces start falling together. Thousands of people, lives are spared because God was moving Joseph into the place where he wanted Joseph. He was testing Joseph all along the way. Would he be faithful here? Would he be faithful in Potiphar's house? Would he be faithful even as a prisoner? Now I'm ready to put him in a place of leadership and to use him in a mighty way. And so God's power can override evil for good. When God tested Job, naturally, uh, Job wanted God to explain himself. Why, Why did you let this happen to me? Why me? But God starts, when Job begins to question, by sitting Job down and saying, let me ask you a few questions first. Job 38, 1-7, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Now prepare yourself like a man, and I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God continues his questioning of Job for two long chapters And concludes with this in Job 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand over my mouth. Or in Texas we say, I will shut my mouth. Good answer. Job had some really bad stuff happen, right? And God just given Job a little perspective. Let me remind you of who's God and who you are. And no, I'm not going to answer your particular question, but I'm going to answer an even bigger question. I created the world. I control the world. I feed all the animals. So God gave Job two more chapters of questions. 
And it concludes with this. Job 42, 1-6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. I know that, uh, and, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Do you know that? Think of the trial that Job is in. It's about as bad as it gets. And so Job now has a perspective that enables him to give this response. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now Job is where God wants him. Dependent. Crying out to God. Casting his cares upon him. So God never gave Job the direct answers he wanted, but he did give him the indirect answers that were sufficient. In effect, God says, Job, if I can do all of this, if I can sustain the universe, I can take care of your problems. And as we grow and mature, we will look back and continue to learn lessons from the trials that God brought us through. And so there are all kinds of trials. If you were thrown into prison because you were preaching the gospel, it'd be obvious that you were in a trial, right? You're out preaching the gospel, they arrest you and throw you in jail, you're being persecuted for your faith. But most of our trials don't come in the obvious ways, they come in a much more subtle way, perhaps through sickness or personal conflicts or failure. Thus James says, and we see Peter also say, that there are various kinds of trials. They can be brief or prolonged, they can be mild or intense, physical or mental or emotional or spiritual, or all of these at once. Again, one of the great differences, though, between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer has confidence that God is at work and has meaning and purpose in everything, even if we don't always know what that meaning and purpose is. For the unbeliever, living in a random universe, it's not a trial. It's just meaningless pain. I sometimes tell people, today I'm a Christian by default. My faith is weak, and I'm not very strong, I'm wobbly, but all the other options look a lot worse. The universe in this other worldview is a meat grinder, and you're the meat. We're all victims. And so we're either victims who concede, who are hopeless and helpless, or else we are victims who in Christ have become victors. Who is it that has overcome the world? What has overcome the world? Your faith. We all have many trials coming and going or right in the middle. Some trials are the result of our sins. Some are the result of other people's sins. Some trials are simply the result of what we call circumstances, the weather, uh, sickness, wars, so forth. But how we respond makes all the difference in whether we grow or don't grow. Sometimes even when we're seeking to do something good, challenges and trials come our way. No good deed goes unpunished, they say. So sometimes you're in the middle of doing something good. Imagine how many things Paul was doing for the gospel and how many times he wound up beaten 
or thrown in prison, persecuted. Don't you get a pass if you're doing God's work? And so, why did God let that happen? He could have prevented it if he wanted to, right? But God was at work in the life of Paul to shape him into the leader that he would become in Christ. God has a plan. He sees the big picture. Paul was learning. He was growing. He was maturing. He was learning firsthand about how to trust God and how to be content in every circumstance so that he could later teach others that godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about the hard things you've done in life and the satisfaction that came. You know, I don't know about you, I want all the pleasures of life. You know, you have a nice piece of dessert or you go play a game. You know, okay, that's pleasure. That was fun. But have you ever had the pleasure of having worked really hard on something and done a good job? Have you ever sacrificed in order to help somebody who really needed helping and known the satisfaction and the pleasure that comes from that? And have you ever gone through a tough time, a trial, and trusted God and gotten to the other side? Do you know what that feels like? I want all those pleasures, and God wants us to have all of them. And so Paul was learning. He was learning firsthand about how to trust God. And so 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. See, God, here I am an apostle. God's been showing me things, talking to me directly. Lest I be exalted, he says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. Sounds like James, right? Consider it all joy. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. He said he takes pleasure in that for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As little children, we're afraid of many things, like the dark, because there's unknown things. I remember being in my bedroom, and if the closet door was left open, the way the ambient light would hit the clothes, I could always see some kind of a monster in my closet. But as we mature, we learn not to be afraid. My dad or mom would come in and tell me, Honey, there's not a monster in the closet. I'll close the door. So they would close the door. And eventually, I, I came to believe there was not a monster in the closet. And so we learn to trust God. And many times in the Bible, we find God saying to his people things like this. Fear not, for I am with thee. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. God is in control of the trial. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you 
except as such is common to man. But God, who is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. One of the Puritans said, God doesn't promise dying grace until your dying day. So I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week, but when the time comes, he'll provide what I need. Maturity involves learning our lessons. Whatever trial you're going through, God thinks it's necessary. And it's important that we learn whatever he's teaching. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. More verses that I love and hate. Um, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith or the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold though tried by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now you do not see him, or whom you have not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving in the end, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's more of that joy talk in the midst of these necessary trials. How many of us faced trials or suffering last week? Frustration? Temptation? Injustice? Did you remember that God planned it for your blessing? And and that you were to respond in obedience and faith? And that God would help you? And that he would give you peace if you would go to him? Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you? We read in verse 2 here of 1 Peter that salvation is brought to pass by the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of those who are being saved. And that leads to a life of obedience to Christ and to the forgiveness of their sins and a life of hope. A life with a magnificent future, grand beyond our power to describe. A life here and now, and a life that lies on the other side of death and resurrection, which Christ made certain for his own. But there's more. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice, now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. So why then are we grieved by various trials? Why do we have to be? Because God thinks it's necessary. Now, if need be. Uh, there's a story I like. A guy named C.C. Jones wrote. There's a book called A Georgian at Princeton. He was a Presbyterian minister. This is in the mid-1800s, and his two older boys are going off to Princeton to study. Very godly family. But they one night, their house burned down. Uh, big home, and a number of people in the home. And you talk about a trial. They lost everything. I want to read this letter he wrote. I read it many times. It moves me every time. We gathered in Mr. Thompson's parlor. Brother Howe and some other friends were there. I thank God. This is why their house is still burning. They're across the street. I thank God for our salvation from the devouring fire and said to Brother Howe, we must now give thanks to God and begged him to pray with us, which he did in a most earnest and affecting manner. And our hearts were relieved at the throne of grace. 
we looked out. There was the dwelling sinking down in fire. Every individual thing in it consuming. We saved nothing but what we stood in, except the few articles named. But my mind has been and was calm. It was the hand of the Lord. It was mine to use, not to hold or keep. He took but what he gave. But what was his own? It all resolved itself into a question of time only. The time was coming when I must be taken from all that was consumed. It pleased God to take all from me and leave me alive. Who were we then that we should complain? In all this, we would not speak unadvisedly with our lips, nor charge God foolishly. And when we remembered how miraculously he had saved us from the devouring fire, for had Bella not discovered the fire a few moments later, some, if not all of us, must have perished, and how much he had preserved to us, we had nothing to do but bless his holy name. When we remembered our sins and how that God could justly have cast us into everlasting burnings, what afflictions or distresses can possibly come upon us that we ought not to submit to with a quiet and thankful spirit? Even though now for a little while, You've been distressed. The trials are temporary. It's easier to endure if we know they're temporary. Now, I'll conclude with this, our responsibility. What is our responsibility in trials? James says, but let patience have its perfect work, or perfecting work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete and lack nothing. How do you do that? Well, first of all, acknowledge that it's God's hand in every circumstance. Ask for wisdom. Rejoice in the midst of your trials. God is at work in you to mature you through the trial. Remember Paul being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He still has you. He had you yesterday and the day before. And then how we respond is critical. Following Jesus. Here we go. This this is what we signed up for. I'm following you wherever you go. Not my will, but your will. I'm going to be big, we're going to be bigger than ourselves through Christ, remembering that maturity is about self-denial, which is about love. Trials are where we find out what we love and who we love. Do we love God and listen and please Him? Do we love our neighbors and put their interests ahead of ours? Do we love our enemies or do we just love ourselves? This will be supernatural work. Turning the other cheek is not natural. Blessing those who curse us is not natural. Not returning insult for insult is not natural. But a blessing, there he goes again, the Bible. No, not, don't just not turn an, an insult for an insult. But a blessing instead. <sighs> you mean that? Yeah. Try that. See what happens. Trust God even 
when it hurts. If you haven't read Jerry Bridges' excellent book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, I recommend that. Very excellent book. And he says basically three doctrines. And these are all kind of good things for us Calvinists. He says the uh, wisdom of God, the power of God, and the love of God. You know what? I don't know much about anything. You know how much you know about the past? Almost nothing. Of all the things there are to know. You know how much you know about the present? Less. You know how much you know about the future? Nothing. So you're really smart, but you know almost nothing about everything. Which means you know nothing for certain, unless you know someone who knows everything about the past, the present, and the future, and they're willing to tell you some of what they know. That's Christian epistemology. It has pleased God to tell us some of what he knows. I've never been to Japan, but I believe it exists. And I believe it because somebody told me. And I believe them. Almost all of what you think you know, you know because somebody told you and you believe them. So this is not a foreign concept. But if God has spoken... You know what? No matter what's going on, let's take Job's case. What did he know? He didn't know why God did what he did with his family or his property and all of that. But what did he know? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know God's good. I know God's powerful. I know God is wise. And I know God loves me. Yeah, but why did he let this happen? I don't know. But I know God's good. I know he's wise, he's powerful, and he loves me. Therefore, he must have a good reason for having this happen. What is the reason? I don't know yet. I might not ever know, but I know God is good. God loves me. He's wise and he's powerful. That I know. I can stand on that. That's Christian maturity. That's what enables us to move forward. Well, I have a bunch more here, but we're just going to stop because I think we're out of time and uh, we'll move, move along. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for your promises, for the things you have revealed, for the things we can know. And we even thank you for the trials we've been through and help us, Lord, to trust you for the future because we know there are more trials ahead of us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to grow and mature and have godly responses in the midst of those trials that we might see the fullness of blessing that comes from those who trust you and cast their cares upon you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.